This is one of the things that the 43 Group is known by and should be known in the future, that you do not wait to be attacked. You take the fight of the enemy and attack those before they attack you. We did find ourselves in a very tricky situation, sometimes outnumbered. Anything you do to deter people from nasty things they want to do was uh, a good thing. Episode 17 of Radio 43, the anti-fascist bulletin podcast from Hope Not Hate. My name is Nick Spooner. I have Roxy Carm-Williams and Joe Mulhall here as well. Um, we didn't do one of these last week because Labour Conference got in the way, along with something else you were doing, Joe. Um, so how are you both doing? Any news you want to share with the uh, with the audience? And me as well. I mean, anything you want to share with me? Um, <laughs> yeah, all good. Um, no news really to report other than I'm very well. And uh, yeah, Labour Party conference was was good, actually. Joe absolutely smashed it. So yeah, feeling good after that. But, did you, um, Joe, did you give an hour and a half speech from the conference floor or were you, you managed <laughs> to be a bit more succinct than uh, than the uh, the leader, Keir Starmer? Well, as as I'm not a member of the Labour Party, I wasn't allowed. Oh. So I was I was tucked away in a side room in a hotel in front of a very small crowd. But it was it was um <laughs> it was great. It was good fun. And Roxy expertly chaired it. And um, and yeah, no, we had a really interesting uh, conversation. Uh, you know, it's really depressing. It was about the international far right, but um, yeah, no, it was nice to be down there for a few days, and we met lots of interesting people, and so yeah, it was okay. Which pub did you go to? Which was your favourite pub? We went uh, to Tempest. Oh, I love the Tempest. Yeah, we went to Tempest, and we went to the Black Line as well. I was a bit, I was a bit inebriated by the end of it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I ended up getting a quite a late train home. <laughs> about six and a half hours after you left, Roxy. Really? Um, and uh, yeah, I felt quite, quite awful the next day. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I was sad not to be there. Uh, it sounded like fun. But uh, let's let's crack on. We were due to have one particularly juicy story this week, but you have to come back another week for that one. But before we get going, I need to make an announcement. Oh. Joe, this is a question for you. I know you like rooting around in the deepest, darkest corners of the internet. But have you ever wanted to conduct a deep search for an article on an obscure British fascist and get results with pinpoint accuracy? Uh, yes, I have. What about you, Roxy? I know you're partial to a bit of video content. So have you wanted to dig into a back catalogue of old webinars and watch one on, say, combating disinformation? I just, I can't think of anything I'd, I'd rather have in my life, to be honest. Oh, it's because you're a sensible person. Um, Joe, one more for you. As always, you know, you're always on the go. But you also, you know, you like aesthetics. Would you want this whole experience to be totally pain-free and also very beautiful to look at? If you're getting paid for this, I want to cut. Yes, I would. Well, listeners, your wait is over. We've got a shiny new website. You can do all of those things and much, much more at hopenothate.org.uk. You need to go and check it out. <laughs> That's the public service announcement. It's done. I did not get paid any extra for that, but uh, I will be uh, entering into negotiation at the end of this call. So you know what? Until until you finished that, I didn't even know where that was going. I, <laughs> no, me neither. I, I thought like, you might have you going? What about? started up your own website or something you were about to plug. It was a Squarespace advert. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. Uh, other other <laughs> platforms are available, of course, and all that. <laughs> um, let's go to our first story, which is uh, extremely serious one. Uh, it's a. It's, I'm going to hand over to you, Roxy. Uh, something we've been speaking sure. about for a couple of weeks, actually. Yeah, so we're going to jump right into it this week. Uh, we're on the topic of the far right rallying around hotels again, and it seems to be happening up and down the country. 
Um, Joe, what's been happening, where and who's leading it? Yeah, so the, again, this, as you say, this is something we've been talking about for, for a long time now, for a couple of years in terms of the far right getting really animated about cross-channel migration as they call them and um you know this has kind of begun to ramp up again uh, much of the attention was down in dover on on the boats arriving themselves but a lot more energy is being placed on on the hotels at the moment or the accommodation where a lot of these asylum seekers and migrants are being housed and you know it's easy almost to say which bits of the far right aren't jumping up and down about this at the moment i mean obviously we mentioned i think last week or the week before last about patriotic alternative spending some time at hotels, but Britain First are really making this the very core plank of their campaigning at the moment. I mean, in September, they were at six or seven different hotels up and down the country. Even people like, you know, Paul Joseph Watson, uh, for those who don't know, this kind of alt-light, as we would have traditionally called him, kind of uh, was a, a correspondent for Infowars in America, but has his YouTube channel. He was made a video about the hotel in Scarborough this week. There's a guy called Alex Belfield, this kind of tragic regional uh, kind of news or like a radio journalist guy who now has his own website and he's jumping up and down about this issue and there's a couple of places I mean we've talked in the past about how the far right are targeting certain areas you know we talked about for Britain spending a lot of time um, in Epping for example talking about hotels but there's a couple Britain first have now done a couple of visits to a hotel in Wigan We've also seen Tommy Robinson talk about the hotel in Wigan and, and some accommodation that's there. Um, Scarborough is another place we're seeing a lot of talk within the far right about. Again, Paul Joseph Watson did a video on that, then Alex Belfield, or Alex Belfield did one, then Paul Joseph Watson, and now Tommy Robinson has been talking about it, um, about the accommodation there. And there's also a lot of chatter about some of the hotel or the hotel in um, Blackpool. So this is what I think we're going to be expecting over the, over the coming weeks and months is we're going to see the far right continue to turn up at migrant accommodation. And um, we're actually finding that it's often local newspapers writing a story about a migrant accommodation hotel and then the far right turning up off the back of that. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's quite worrying time seeing how, how much activism we're seeing around, around this accommodation and how scary it must be for a lot of the quite vulnerable people that are inside. Yeah, I um I saw a story, admittedly, on the Daily Mail, so um, I feel a little bit embarrassed about that. But, um, the, yeah, the story of, um, I think it was 150 refugees having to be evacuated after a bomb hoax um, a day after anti-migrant leaflets were posted in Scarborough. I mean, it's just absolutely awful, and it has such, you know, real-life implications for these people. Had you heard about that, Joe? Yeah, yeah, and we've seen, I mean, you mentioned the leaflets, right? I mean, four Britain have been putting out about this issue. Patriotic Alternative have specifically put out uh, stuff around uh, like in the country uh, specifically on this issue. And obviously a lot of it is directly targeted as, as uh, Afghan migrants. And the narrative that's being placed is, as, as we've kind of mentioned before, some of it is migrants are being given housing and accommodation when British you know, uh, veterans are not. But also that there's this really racist undertone about how Afghanis with different cultures eating weird food you know, some of the stuff that has come out is, you know, eating strange foods and they just don't have the same civilised standards as us. So they're basically trashing the hotels and, and all this sort of stuff, you know, talking about children being feral and, and all sorts of really racist language in this stuff. So it's not just where they're, they're kind of active, like Britain First are turning up at hotels to having a little demo, filming a video. There's also places all around the country where the far right attempting to exploit this issue by pushing leaflets through doors as well. Mm. To what extent do you... Do you see this as a lack of leadership, both at you know, national and local level, to make the argument for 
for refugees and asylum seekers. You know, obviously we've had this quote unquote Operation Warm Welcome, but um, that obviously hasn't hasn't actually happened. To what extent can we kind of put that? Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of failings all across the board, right? There's been failings by the Conservatives who have fed off and contributed to this kind of hostile environment. Um, you know, the kind of the stuff coming out of the Home Office and Pretty Patel, we've talked about numerous times in the podcast, has been disgusting and, and pretty ugly around this issue. Then the Labour Party, I think, have failed to take a really brave or progressive stance on this and actually turn around and say what they want because they're terrified, because they think there's public support for the more hostile reaction. And so the Labour Party haven't offered a kind of moral leadership on this either. And then at a local level, often the kind of local councils, there's these huge vacuums of information where people talking about it is the local media and the far right. And a lot of local people are concerned and they're worried because the hotel's been taken over. They don't know how many people, they don't know how long they're going to be there for, they don't know where they're from. And so there's this information vacuum. And so and some local councils have come out very against it and fed into some of the anti-migrant stuff or some have kind of kept quiet. So there's been an awful lot of failings from across the board in terms of uh, kind of certainly preparing local communities for these other groups arriving in the community so that they understand what's happening and they're not and they're not getting their information from the far right. And then, as I say, you know, there's there's groups within government or, you know, Pretty Patel herself who are contributing to this hostility actively. Thanks. Thanks very much for that, you two. Uh, great analysis there, as always. Uh, let's dive into the next story which is about britain first um it's been quite a big couple of weeks for the biffers actually on september 27th britain first was officially re-registered as a political party by the electoral commission um and you know they may have been banned from multiple social media platforms over the years and and paul golding might have many convictions one of which was under the terrorism act lest we forget but that hasn't stopped Britain First getting a foot in the door of British democracy once more. So, Joe, give us a little bit of history about Britain First as a political force, um, and how have they done up to this point? It's not a yeah. great, it, it doesn't it doesn't spell success, does it? I mean, the, the, the Britain First and success are not synonymous with one another, are they? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, Britain First is, yeah, started back in two thousand eleven. It was uh, lead, led by a guy called Paul Golding. It was founded by Jim Dowson. Uh, anyone interested in, in those individuals just, you know, hit their names into our new website. But there's, there was also someone called Jada Franson, who was formerly the deputy leader. They, they became really well known because of their really quite hostile anti-Muslim politics. Um, and they did the mosque invasions. They did their so-called Christian patrols where they went around. And you kind of, you're right to say that they were being re-registered because they were a political party um, registered in 2010 where for they said administrative reasons but essentially i think they forgot to fill in the forms they've had a really long struggle back to trying to be registered to stand in elections i mean in 2009 the electoral commission fined them for a load of breaches of electoral law i think there were about 44 grand was the fine they ended up getting but this included things like they didn't keep accurate financial records or donation reports and um anyone who's looked at britain first might hazard a guess at why they weren't too keen to keep accurate financial records shall we say but Ooh, nudge nudge wink wink <laughs> but you know them uh, that hasn't of course stopped their activism that they haven't been able to go on the on the ballot paper what i would say is you know this is a party that has been extraordinarily unsuccessful when they have stood in the elections um you know golding has stood at numerous elections in terms of the london assembly mayoral candidates the european parliament and like House of Commons elections, all of which they've had pretty terrible results in. So this is one issue of them kind of riding back, you know, turning up and being the new BMP. I don't think that's going to happen, but to stand in the next election. And, and we've talked about them loads on this podcast because they are very active. 
But what I would say is they are very active, but still very small. They're very good at projecting a much larger image than they actually are. And if you look at their core activists, it's, you know, they would like you to think that it's thousands of people. It's, it's absolutely not the case. Most of the individuals that engage in the activism we always talk about is a handful, you know, in the dozens around the country. And there's only certain areas of the country where they have activists at all. So I don't think this is a, a matter of them kind of being a huge electoral threat but we will see them concentrate on elections we will see them campaigning in elections and you know they already do a lot of campaigning with leaflets etc and they wanted to stand in the last elections and they were ready for it but they didn't obviously hadn't been registered and they had this long fight to get registered which they've now been successful with but at the next election at the next by-election they'll 100 percent be there they'll be they'll be handing out anti-muslim literature and so it's going to be causing all sorts of community problems so it's not good news but it's um it's you know we don't want to kind of blow it up too much that they're going to be riding into power at the next election or anything yeah they're one of those uh groups who i think we've said this before on the podcast there is a kind of long history of uh uk far-right groups just being shit at admin and it costing them very badly and i think that's not just a throwaway line like this is mm-hmm. another one that for, for whom that has happened uh too the, the thing i was thinking about as well was uh, you just sort of touched on that there was that we see it, you know in the post-war period there's there is this kind of constant cycle isn't there where far-right groups they kind of build strength at the street level uh and then they sort of have they have the confidence to decide they're going to push for fascism through the ballot box and then they get smashed and then they go back to street politics it seems to me that britain first are trying to fast track the second part of that process without doing the first bit and you've kind of just alluded to that there really that they don't really have the activist base at all to, to make this kind of move actually stick well it's worth remembering of course that paul golden came out of the bmp right so Paul Golding cut his political teeth in a, polit- a proper political party for whatever you think about Britain first. You know, they had a proper regional structure. They had branches around the country that, that existed for decades. They had regional leaders. They had, you know, all the formal structures of a political party, despite being kind of a fascist political party. And so that's where he set up his political career or his early years of his political career. And he's desperately been trying to replicate that within Britain first. You know, they have spent a lot of time in the last two years trying to rebuild a regional structure, try to get regional and then local leaders, try to have all the sorts of mechanisms in terms of membership lists, etc. cetera, um, that the BMP used to have. Um, so I'm not sure how much of it is tactical in terms of, you know, we'll do the streets and then we'll do the ballot box. I think uh, for him, it's just the way he saw the success of the British National Party and the, the long term aims of Golding is to turn Britain first into an electoral force like the BNP was. Now, I think the uh, likelihood of that happening is extraordinarily small, but that's certainly the model along he, of which he's basing Britain first at the moment. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Good analysis. Right, let's uh, wrap this episode up then with uh, just a quick minute talking about someone we've spoken about on here a few times over the last uh couple of weeks mr stephen laws the migrant hunter down in the southeast joe twitter finally took action against steve laws didn't they kind of um what was it the do you know what it was that finally made them take the step of removing his main account have you got any idea <laughs> well look i mean the only people that can remove someone from twitter is twitter see how the far right talk about this stuff they think we've got like a little magic button on my desk that i just kind of press when I want someone removed, and, uh, <laughs> and that's that's, def- that's that's only when you want a coffee in the office, right? That's the button you press. <laughs> yeah, but um, that's definitely not what happens. But we definitely we have been talking to Twitter quite some time about Steve Laws, 
and we spoke to them uh, in the last couple of weeks as well where we we, we obviously as you uh, we'd published an article about them by my colleague safia um we had uh, we'd written like done some campaigning around steve laws and we've raised the concerns that he was still on twitter propagating some really ugly stuff and we felt explicitly breaking terms of service and they responded to that and, and they removed him so um you know the decision was down to twitter of course but i'd like to think that we obviously highlighted um why why we thought it was a good idea he's got another account of course uh yeah. it seems yes you know and um raising concerns about that yeah <laughs> what's um what's the back I, I i suppose you kind of alluded to this as well already um uh, sort of asking you questions you've already spoken about but what's the backlash been like to this from the from his supporters it's i, I was just i i had a, li a little look on twitter and it was fairly they were fairly vociferous for a while uh has that carried on yeah yeah i mean he's been it's funny you know kind of steve laws has been playing it as though oh, isn't it funny that hope not hates obsessed with me and um and he's caused some pylons so my kind of my my DMs and my mentions have been full of all sorts of horribleness for two weeks, which but a lot of it's been quite amusing. But what I would say is that like for all of his, I don't care. And, you know, I'm not interested. He's, but he spent a lot of time talking about what's happening to him. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to reduce the reach and impact of what we think is a really explicitly harmful form of politics he's engaging in. I think we're being successful at that and that's that's causing him a lot of problems personally we're reducing his reach right and that's what we're here to do and unsurprisingly he's getting angry about that and his supports getting angry about that and one of the things they keep saying which is worth addressing is oh this is a free speech issue and um you know it's not he has every right to say whatever racist nonsense he wants to he has every right to to kind of within legal limits say what he likes but it doesn't necessarily mean he has to be allowed to say that on twitter and, and a lot of the activism that he was propagating on Twitter was making the lives of migrants and asylum seekers much harder. So I think it's a really positive step that Twitter have taken by removing him. Just uh, on a more broad, uh, on a sort of broader point, you wrote a, a really great article a couple of years back about the impact of deplatforming on far right figures, uh, both here in, uh, and in the US as well. Could you just give us a little reminder, a little reminder of what the main thrust of that article was? Because I, th I thought it was really, really great. And I know we've shared it multiple times since that. Um, do you remember the one I know you've written about billions? <laughs> yeah, <times>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, look, I mean, basically, it makes the argument that deplatforming works, right? For those who don't know, deplatforming is essentially removing individuals from social media. Um, deplatforming is not a silver bullet, right? Because it does not mean that the individual disappears. It doesn't mean that their politics have been fixed. And so, lots of people have argued that actually, what it does is it it removes people from mainstream social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, and it pushes them to more extreme and less monitored corners of the internet. Now, certainly that is true in that individuals that when they lose their major platforms, they will have to be on smaller platforms that have much more lax moderation. But I think the reason we think that deplatforming works is that different platforms serve different purposes and often the far right use them all simultaneously. They might use Twitter for much more moderate content uh, where they want to propagate, like, you know, use propaganda and try and find new activists, whereas they might use Telegram to talk to each other kind of the more extreme behavior and so by removing the mainstream social media platforms or getting them deplatforms what that does is it means that their ability to reach new people to propagandize to recruit new people is severely curtailed it doesn't mean that they're not doing all sorts of harmful stuff on bit shoots and gab and parlor etc but it does mean that their ability to reach people beyond their existing movement is, is curtailed and so for us i think it's about saying yes we can reduce that harm in the first instance and then there's other harms we have to deal with with the other platforms 
but um yeah it's not a silver bullet but we think it works yeah as i say it's a great article and so sort of in, in a beautiful piece of uh, synchronicity i'm going to tie this together the beginning and the end by saying if you go to our new website and you type in uh de-platforming works so let's get on with it uh then you can read that great article by joe and you can also read the fantastic article that safia uh, written, uh, wrote earlier on, which uh, which Joe mentioned on Steve Laws about why he's far right. It's a really, really good piece. I recommend that. Um, right, you two. Miracles do happen. We've managed to finish this in under half an hour for the first Amazing. time in a long time. <laughs> do you want to add anything else or shall we end this here so we don't, have to, we don't actually run over for the first time? So I'm, that's all I've got. You good? Yeah. Let's, let's leave it there, comrades. That all was right. uh, beautiful short and sweet i like it joe and roxy thank you both as always uh big thanks to our producer jake as well and uh cheers to you for listening i uh, really appreciate it we'll be back next week uh we'll have more hot stories for you i imagine <laughs> that, uh, sounded, that sounded unnecessarily creepy yeah i don't know why i said that <laughs> anyway speak to you soon Cannot prevent 50 people, 50 postmen or 50 dustmen from having anti-Semitic thoughts. But you can prevent 50 dustmen forming an anti-Semitic dustman association. Take the fight of the enemy and attack those before they attack you.